Everybody else have a seat. That line that we just repeated, day and night, night and day, let incense arise. That's just a way of saying, let our praises to God arise. Or another way to say that, let us worship. What is worship? If not taking the focus off of me and putting the focus upon he, the one who is truly worthy of it all, the one who is truly the author of my life, the author of my story. It's an important thing to consider tonight. Who is writing your story? When you come to the end of your life, And you look back and you look at every high and you look at every low and you look at every tear and every smile and every success and every regret. Who wrote that story? Was it you? Or was it God? A lot of us go about halfway. We'll say, well, it was a collaborative effort. It's like we're writing a Wikipedia page. We've got multiple contributors, authors. God's kind of the moderator, editor, you know, up in the cloud somewhere over top. Are you willing to go so far as to say that God is in control of every single moment of your life? That he is the author of your life? That nothing comes as a surprise to him? He is the author of the highs. He is the author of the lowest lows. My name is Brian Culbertson. I am the senior pastor here at Refuge. Last weekend, I was out. It was my oldest daughter's spring break. She was home from college. And so we're learning to be cruisers on a boat, like not a big cruise ship, but cruising around the country and the world on a boat. Our boat's name is the Three Dog Cat. It's because we have three dogs. And it's a catamaran. Now, we took our three dogs with us. We went to Tampa for the weekend. And the question we got all weekend is, where's the cat? (laughs) They did not get my pun, apparently. The boat is a catamaran. Our dog's name are Yogi, Roxy, and Ivy. We got a poodle, a doodle, and a Labrador. These dogs, the entire trip, man, they were just content, happy, no worries, They never said to me, how long is this trip? Granted, my dogs can't speak, but they didn't have that look in their eyes. They never asked when we were ever going to come home. When it was time to leave for the trip, there was no hesitation. No, Brian, I don't know. I'm kind of got a full plate chasing the cats this week. There was none of that. We could have been going when we left for that trip on a five-minute boat ride down the river, and that would have been fine with them. Or we could have been doing a five-year circumnavigation of the globe. And that would have been fine with them. They were ready to go. Whenever, wherever, however long, not a worry in the world. Why? Because they trusted their people. They wanted to be with their people. That no matter where we went or how long we were gone, they just knew they would be with us. And that was good enough. We're looking at the difficult truth of Jesus. We looked at his unhurried way. We're going to be looking at Easter, at his everlasting life. But tonight we're looking at the difficult truth of Jesus. And Jesus teaches us that the trust of my dogs and me is the kind of trust that we're supposed to put in him. Not because he is some narcissistic dictator, but because he is the author of our story. And he wants us to experience life and life to the fullest right now with him. 
And so tonight, to teach this, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. And as I read this chapter this week, and maybe you did too, it felt like I was drinking from the fire hose of difficult truth, because it is just truth upon truth upon truth. And so we're going to jump right into it, just to give you a little background. There are huge crowds by Luke chapter 12 following Jesus. It is like March Madness. The team is winning. All the fans are coming out of the woodwork, the Fairweather fans. They're like, Jesus, Jesus, you're the best. Yes. They're screaming. They're yelling. And so what do they do, Mike? Jesus says, okay, let me lay some difficult truth on you then. And he starts with this, verse 1. He says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. That sounds fun. The time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known. Verse 3 says, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the rooftops for all to hear. How's that for some difficult truth? All that is covered up will be revealed. Everything you've ever whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the rooftops. I don't know about you, but I don't want that. So he addresses the Pharisees, the religious. Now he turns to his friends. Friends, he says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more to you after that. (laughs) It's kind of a bold statement, right? He says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill you because that is the absolute worst they can do to you and death ain't all that big of a deal. So don't be afraid. Jesus is leading his audience. He's leading us somewhere tonight. And he starts that leading us somewhere with what we think is the worst possible thing that could ever happen to us. Death. And he says to this worst case possible scenario, he says, don't be afraid. There are 66 books of the Bible, 40 plus authors written over the course of thousands of years. If you read the Bible cover to cover, you made a note of every single command that was ever listed, ever spoken. Guess which one is repeated the most? If you've been in church any length of time, you know the answer, right? It's fear not. Fear not. Why? Because the author of the story, God, he knew that the very minute he gave us free will, he was also handing us worry And he was handing us fear. Worry and fear. They are two sides of the same evil coin. So I'm going to use those two words synonymously tonight. Worry and fear. And both worry and fear are forward-looking words. They are predictions. They are a concern that God may just not get it right. That we may not get all the things that we want. The house, the marriage, the long retirement the politician we want to save this nation, that we may lose the things that we have that we want to keep, our jobs, our health, our nest egg, our level of happiness, or that we might get the thing that we do not want, the cancer, the notice that our rent is going up another 30%, and that's if we're lucky in Southwest Florida. 40% of the things we worry about, statistically, this is per some website I found, but let's say we believe it, okay? 40% of the things we worry about, they say, will never happen. 40% of them. 30% of the things we worry about are in the past, which means we can't do a dang thing to change that. 12% of the things we worry about involve the affairs of others that are none of our business. And 10% of the things we worry about relate to sickness, whether those sicknesses are real or imagined. So the website said only 8% of the things that we worry about will ever happen to us or that we have any control over. 
But we all worry, right? If we're healthy, we worry about getting sick. If we're sick, we catastrophize and worry about the worst case scenario. If we're flat broke, we fear we will never get out of the cycle of poverty. If we have money, then we begin to worry that we're going to lose said money. We worry about our kids. We worry who we're going to sit with at lunch or if anybody will sit with us. That's middle schoolers, but maybe it's some of you adults too in the room. I don't know. We worry about getting gray hair. We worry about that person who didn't respond to our text. Anybody worry about that? Or maybe they respond with, not an okay, but the dreaded thumbs up. (laughs) You're like, what does that mean? Is that a blow off? (laughs) Jesus gets it though. He's unlike any other God in any other religion. Listen to this. Jesus was single his entire life. Jesus had to depend upon the generosity of others for survival. People constantly maligned his reputation. Jesus' family thought he was straight up crazy. Jesus' best friends let him down when he needed them the most. Jesus had plenty to worry about. But here's what he says in verse 5. He says, but I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God who has the power to kill you and throw you into hell. Now, that is not a real warm and fuzzy kind of statement that he says here. But he says, of all these statistically improbable scenarios that you are worried about, there is one that you should be worried about. There is one that is a guarantee. It is a 100% reality. You are going to die. And when you die, your life is going to be judged. It's 100% certain. He said, if you're going to fear anything, that's what you need to fear. Thankfully, though, Jesus doesn't end his sermon, mic drop, hard stop, good luck, peace out with all that. He keeps going. He says, you should fear God. You really should. But let me tell you about that God. He goes on in verse 6. He says, what is the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them. Five sparrows, two pennies. Not something very valuable. And yet God, whom you should fear, doesn't forget a single one of those sparrows. Jesus goes on, he says, the very heads of your hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. What does it mean that our hairs of our head are numbered by the author of the story of life? It means that God knows us intimately, personally. God knows your needs. God knows that I am rooting for the Indiana Hoosiers like crazy in March Madness, and he cares that I'm rooting for the Hoosiers. He knows that I'm rooting against Kentucky. I hate Kentucky. He knows I shouldn't hate people, but he knows me. God knows my love languages because he put them in me. God knows my Enneagram. God knows my Meyer Brig and INFP. He knows this because he created me. And God knows what tempts me. And God knows me better than I even know myself. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, God knows you. And he also values you so high that you are priceless. It says here that you're more valuable than a flock of sparrows. That's just an idiom that's saying you're really, really valuable, infinitely valuable. So we get to verse 13 next, and it says, Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. (laughs) What? There's always that one person, right? You're having a meeting, you're in the classroom, 
leader is teaching. They're giving this big high-level overview of things. And then you got that person that wants to know some very specific answer for some very specific situation that is only applicable to their lives. Well, everybody else has to sit and listen to this stupid question. And so Jesus has just said, you are known by God. You are valued more than you can comprehend. And some guy's like, teacher, can you tell my brother to give me my dad's hummels since he's no longer with us? If you don't know what a Hummel is, Google it. There are these little German statues that people pass down. Verse 14, Jesus replied to this guy. He says, friend, which is a nice way to start. He said, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And all Jesus is doing here is he's just trying to trivialize the, civil, or the situation. It's like a parent with the two kids fighting in the back seat. She hit me, she hit me. And you just say, you two figure it out. That's what Jesus is doing here. But then he decides to maybe continue on a little bit, and he gives a warning. He says in verse 15, beware. Guard against, what? Every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Jesus knows every hair on this man's head. He knows every hair on the head of every person in the audience that he is teaching that night. He knows every head and every hair of everybody in this room. And so he takes this one very specific, very annoying question. He's like, you know what? We're going to have a teaching moment here. And so Jesus is about to reveal a difficult truth. He says, if you are not content with what you have, brother, you're not going to be content when you have more. He says, guard against every kind of greed. He's not just talking about money, or he would say, be on guard against money. He says, every kind of greed, greed for attention, greed for recognition, greed for another person's time, greed for compliments, greed for influence, greed for power, greed for sex, greed for privileges. It says, be on guard against all kinds of greed. And then verse 16, it says, then he told them a story. This is what Jesus does. He starts here, he starts teaching, he's like, hang on, let me tell you a story. And so the story goes like this. He says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. The man thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, this seems like a good problem to have, right? It's like Pablo Escobar, his biggest problem he had was where to find to hide all his money because he was making $50 million a day. Or maybe Joel Osteen, where he's hiding it up in the walls of his church. I don't know. It's a problem, finding places to hide your money. (laughs) Verse 18 says, then he says, I know, man, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and all the other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. It's a tough bit of news to get. Then who will get everything you worked for? You are a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with your God. And then Jesus turns to his disciples. He's teaching the masses over here. And at some point, he steps away from the masses, and he begins to teach the small group of disciples, his apprentices, the ones who are wanting to follow the way of Jesus, the ones who are absorbing his difficult truth, the ones who want to live his eternal life. And Jesus says to these apprentices, this is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food to eat or clothes to wear, for life is more than food, and your body is more than clothing. 
Jesus uses two items. He uses food. He uses clothing. Two things the people he would be speaking to worried about needing in their lives. And Jesus says to these people who are worried about food and worried about clothing, he says, life is more than food. Life is more than clothes. Life is more than a bank account. Life is more than your health. Life is more than whether or not you are liked or not. Life is more than whatever it is that's been keeping you up at night this week. And then he goes here, he says, verse 24, consider the ravens. That's an odd choice, right? Ravens are kind of nasty, ugly birds. I mean, what, what do we know about ravens? They're creepy. Once upon a midnight dreary while I pondered weeping, <laughs> quote the raven, nevermore, you know. No one has a pet raven, I don't think, in the room, right? And if you do, we need to talk after the sermon because you got some issues. But if we think of all the birds in the world, ravens got to be down pretty near the bottom of the warm and fuzzy list. And furthermore, ravens are scavengers. They steal stuff in order to survive. And Jesus says, consider the ravens. Basically saying, you know what, guys, take some time. Let's do a little meditation right now for a second upon the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. And yet God feeds them. Then he adds, how much more valuable are you than birds? Jesus said, don't you know who you are? You are the son of God. You are the daughter of God. You are the pinnacle of my creation. You are the reflection of my image. I am about to give my life for you. None of that applies to ravens, not even close. Yet God loves them. And he takes care of them. In verse 25, he says, Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? It's a pretty profound statement. No amount of worry can extend your life. It is a complete anti-activity. I saw a quote this week. Don't know who it's attributed to, but she said, worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it never gets you anywhere. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that's back in Matthew chapter 7. And he's teaching. This is his most famous sermon. And one of the things he teaches is he says, watch out for false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. When we think of false prophets, we think of like the Mormon Joseph Smith or Brigham Young, or we think of Jim Jones of the blue Kool-Aid fame, or we think of David Koresh as false prophets. But isn't worry the very definition of a false prophet? I mean, worry tries to predict the future. And worry's predictions, like a false prophet's, almost never come true. Worry pretends to be helping us, but in reality is a ferocious wolf devouring us from the inside out. What fruit has the false prophet of worry ever produced in your life? Think about that. For me, it's caused a lot of anger, irritability, impatience. Caused me to treat other human beings like burdens. Caused me to check out. It's raised my blood pressure. Shortened my life. But I can't say worry has ever produced any love or joy or patience or kindness in my life. It's never added a second to my life. It's never brought me a moment of contentment or joy or peace or happiness. Verse 27, Jesus says, consider the wildflowers. 
Jesus has a lot of metaphors, and he's got one for everybody. So he's like, those ravens, they didn't do it for you. Maybe you're a flower person. So let's talk about these lilies that are growing over here. He says, they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Verse 28, he says, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, how much more will he clothe you? Why do you have so little faith? Or as the King James puts it, and sometimes the King James just gets it more right, don't they? O ye of little faith. That's the line. We all know that one, right? And I've heard it taught as this rebuke, this criticism of Jesus, like, O ye of little faith, why don't you have more faith? But if you actually study this, when Jesus says, O ye of little faith, it's a term of endearment. O ye, my little, sweet, innocent child of little faith. Jesus knows every hair on my head. It means he also knows that I struggle with my face, faith. He knows that I really do want to believe and how hard it is. He know I, sh- I know I shouldn't worry about the little stuff, that I shouldn't fear death, but I still do. And so this is Jesus with compassion speaking to me. O ye of little faith. Don't forget that even a little faith can move mountains because of who that faith is in. Verse 29, he says, and don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your father, he already knows what you need. And verse 31 says, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. It's like a Publix BOGO. Anybody cannot resist a Publix BOGO. It don't matter what I go to Publix to buy. If there is a BOGO right in that front aisle, we are coming home with some gummy bears or whatever it is they got up there. Oreo cookies, I think, this week. Jesus says, seek God's kingdom. That's the true prize, but it's a BOGO. If you do that, all the rest of this stuff will be thrown in. Even if life doesn't look promising, even if it looks like the odds are stacked against you, if you seek the kingdom of God, you get everything else. And so he says in verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock. It's another term of endearment. He is just loving on these disciples. You little faith, you little flock. He says, do not be afraid for your father has been pleased to already give you the kingdom. Jesus never says there's nothing to worry about. In fact, by calling them his little flock, his sheep, he's reminding them that there is plenty to worry about. Sheep are helpless. Sheep can't survive without a shepherd. And so Jesus, by calling his disciples his flock, he's reminding them that though there is plenty to worry about, the God of the universe is your shepherd. He is your protector. He is your provider. Jesus is a good preacher. And this has been a good sermon. He's preaching, right? He starts with the big picture. Guys, there is nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. Some guy asks a very specific question. He doesn't get off track. He just starts to go down this rabbit hole with this guy and with everybody around. And he tells a story. He explains the story and he gives metaphors to drive home the point. And like every good sermon, now he's going to wrap it up with just a really practical life application. And so he says this, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. 
And so Jesus has been teaching, don't worry. Don't be afraid. If God takes care of the lilies, if God takes care of the ravens, he'll most certainly take care of you. And if I was there, I'd be listening and I'd be feeling really good. That is a great message, Rabbi. How do I do that? How do I live this out? Rabbi, give me some practical advice. And Jesus says, okay, sell your possessions and give them all to the poor. And at first glance, this seems like a bit extreme. But I think it's perfect for where Jesus wants to go. So follow me here. We're going to get there. Early on in my faith journey, I have not been a Christian my whole life. And Karen had convinced me to go to church. And one weekend, we heard a pastor speaking. And he said something to the effect that if you worry as a Christian, you're no better than an atheist. He said, if you worry, you are basically an atheist. Now, again, keep in mind, I was a non-Christian at the time. I was agnostic at best. And so when he said that, it meant very little to me, but it did give me ammunition to use against all you guys. Like, I know you, and y'all worry all the time, which means y'all don't believe this stuff. You're an atheist just like me. Now, for the record, as I've studied scripture, I don't believe that worry makes you an atheist. If it did, we're all atheists because we all worry, and it's a very flawed argument. But I do believe that worry robs us of the abundant life that Jesus is promising us that we can live right now. And so Jesus concludes this session of difficult truth by saying this. He says, if you are worried... Let's say you're worried about your finances. Then money, then stuff is stealing life from you. And we don't want that. So just give it to me. I'll take it. See what? Jesus isn't trying to take your stuff. He's trying to take away our worry. We are creatures made in the image of God, but we are not God which means we do not know everything, which means by design, we were meant, because we do not know everything, that we were meant, we have to operate with a level of trust. Adam and Eve did not trust God. What happens? They're forced out of the garden. They're forced to deal with the complexities of good and evil without the full capacity of wisdom, knowledge, and strength to process all of that. And without wisdom, without knowledge, without strength to process the complexities of life, that means as human beings, we have no choice but to operate by trust. Trust. That's why the Bible teaches when we are saved, it's not by doing, it's not by knowing everything. It says we are saved by faith alone. That's God's design. We do not know everything by design, and by his design, we are saved by trusting him. And so following the difficult truth of Jesus is an act of trust. All of those difficult truths. Forgive those who have sinned against you. It takes a lot of trust in Jesus to do that. Have peace and face the fearful trials. It takes a lot of trust. Bless those who persecute you. That takes a lot of trust. Rejoice when life is sorrowful. It takes trust to do that. And yes, give generously to the kingdom of God. It takes trust to let go of your money and hand it over to God's kingdom. Now, to take a little deviation here, we are not a generous church as a whole. How do I know this? 
I know how many people are here generally week in and week out and how many people call this church home. I know our annual monthly giving. The numbers just don't match up. We are just not a very generous church on the whole. Why is that? I don't know. We have a lot of new believers, so that could be part of the reason why. We don't sit here and guilt you into it every week, and so that could be part of the reason why. Uh, We don't give tithe messages very often. We certainly don't give one every other week like some churches do, and so maybe that's it. But I've also heard a lot of you walk through the doors, and you say, you know what? I don't give to my church because I got screwed by that past church. They hurt me. In other words, I don't trust my church to not waste my money. And I tell you, man, I get that. That is in part why we started Refuge. I had major uh, issues with the church as a whole, with how the church as a whole in America handles their finances. They're not good stewards. They waste a lot. Um, We don't even take up an offering here, if you haven't noticed, and we don't talk about giving a whole lot. And so perhaps the lack of generosity and giving in this church is my fault, because I have some hurt in the past as well, and I tend to keep it at arm's length. But even if you don't give to this church, maybe you're generous elsewhere. Where are you giving generously to? Maybe you don't trust this church yet. That's okay. But where are you giving generously to? If it's not your church, is it your favorite charity that you're passionate about, that God's laid on your heart? Is it a ministry? Is it a missionary? How are you trusting God with your bank account and generosity? Let's go back and reread this. Verse 33 Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. Wherever your treasure is, as we know it, there your heart will also be. How you use your resources, whether that's time, your talents, your money, is just a really good, simple barometer of where your treasure is, of where your heart lies. If you hoard it all, you got to ask yourself, and Why? Could it be that you're worried if you gave it all away, God would let you starve? God would let you go naked? You think he'll clothe the flowers, he'll feed the ravens, but not me. What would enable you to be more generous? Was it a larger salary? Less debt? And perhaps all those things mathematically would help, but they don't change your spirit of trust and generosity. It's a lot of things in our lives that we worry about, right? But Jesus ends this teaching on worry and fear going straight to money. Why? Because he's smart. It's low-hanging fruit. It's easy. It is so easy to open up your bank accounts and see where your trust lies by every purchase and every donation you ever make. And if you don't give to refuge because you don't trust us, man, that's fine. That's good, in fact, because I believe that a church should earn your trust before you give them a single penny. On the flip side, if you've been here five years and you call this your church home and you say you still can't trust us, it's probably time for you to find a different church home because we're never going to earn that trust from you. Let me give you a little quick sidebar here, too, as we wrap up. We work hard as a church to be very good stewards. We've kept our expenses low. We keep our overhead low. If we had more resources, we wouldn't spend it on bigger church budgets. We would spend it upon serving the least of these. Did you know that an adoption today costs $50,000? If we were a generous church, we could help families adopt three or four children a year. How awesome would that be? We could support missionaries who have the same values that we have here as a church. So I'm mentioning giving because that's what we're shooting for. But I'll repeat it again. 
Don't trust us just because I say, trust me. Don't trust anyone who says, just trust me because it's a trap. It's gaslighting at its best. Make them prove it. Make them earn your trust. Likewise, don't trust a God who just says, just trust me. Trust a God who says, let me show you why you can trust me. A God who was willing to come into a world full of fear and worry. He was willing to live in that world as a human being, and he did so without sinning. And then he died on a cross for you, for me, showing just how far he was willing to go to earn your trust. So this series is the difficult truth of Jesus. And as I thought through this message and this story in Luke chapter 12 tonight, I said, well, what is the difficult truth? That's what Nicole has been pushing me to do each week. Like, what is the difficult truth of this story? And the difficult truth is this. It's just difficult to believe that we are that valuable to God, that we are that loved, that we are infinitely loved by God. That's the difficult truth here tonight. That's it. If we could believe that, we'd let go of any greed in our lives. If we could believe that, we wouldn't worry. If we could believe that, we'd fear nothing, not even death. And so I want to encourage you tonight, if you have worries, look to Jesus. Trust where he's taking your story. Believe that he will always provide. And then jump on that boat, ready to go whenever wherever and for however long. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. God, we thank you for your word. This speaks so much more truth than we ever could as pastors or preachers. And so God, we just thank you for your written word that's been preserved for us to show us your truth. God, I pray tonight that if there is somebody in this room who is just dealing with a burden of worry, that as we sing this last song, that you would just place that worry upon their heart, upon their mind. And just somehow as we sing, that they would be allowed to let go of some of that worry, to let it go, to handle it over to you. To be able to sing tonight, it is well, even though it does not feel well for them right now, but they can sing that it is well because they know in the end that it all will be well, that the story does end in victory. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the love that you showed that we can trust you.